to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicola Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastaquig. Today, I'll be interviewing Kent Roach about his book, Wrongfully Convicted, Guilty Pleas, Imagined Crimes, and What Canada Must Do to Safeguard Justice, published by Simon & Schuster in 2023. Kent Roach is a professor of law at the University of Toronto, Faculty of Law. He's the author of several books, including The Supreme Court on Trial, False Security, The Radicalization of Canadian Anti-Terrorism, and Canadian Policing, Why and How It Must Change. He has won awards for teaching, research, pro bono work, and his many contributions to the promotion of civil liberties in Canada. He's a member of the Order of Canada and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Recently, he co-founded the Canadian Registry of Wrongful Convictions and has been appointed chair of the Management Advisory Board for the RCMP. This is the second podcast that I've spoken with Kent about his work. Our first interview was about his book, Canadian Justice, Indigenous Injustice, the Gerald Stanley and Colton Bushy case. Please check the Champlain Society website for a link to that interview. In all of his scholarship, Kent brings a historical sensitivity to the analysis of contemporary legal problems. His recent book about wrongful convictions in Canada is no exception. Kent, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your latest book. Good to be with you again, Nicole. In his foreword to the book, Lawyer and founder of Innocence Canada, James Lockyer, claims that a book that examines Canada's wrongful convictions is long overdue, and that no one is better equipped than you to write it. Can you tell us about some of the experiences that you've had that have given you an insight into the issue of wrongful convictions? Well, I first met James when I was uh, asked to represent Innocence Canada, it was then known as the Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted, during a week uh, in the Guy Paul Moran inquiry. And of course, Guy Paul Moran was one of the best known wrongful convictions. He was exonerated by DNA. The DNA has recently revealed who the real killer of Christine Jessup was. So I've known um, uh, James uh, since uh, I 1997. Uh, he's, he's, he's one of the few people that intimidate me, so I was a little bit worried asking him, but he very generously agreed to write the preface. Uh, I also worked as uh, director of research for the Gouge Inquiry, and James was one of the driving forces behind correcting the wrongful convictions that were related to erroneous uh, pathology evidence by Charles Smith. So he represented William Mullins Johnson, Tammy Marquard, both Indigenous people wrongfully convicted of murdering uh, children that were in their care. And so 
one of the things that I think about in this book is how um, imagined crimes or what James would call crimes that did not happen, how are they related to stereotypes and suspicions? And so I look at cases involving both Tammy Marcard and Bill Mullins Johnson, but also a um, Indigenous man from New Brunswick by the name of James Turpin. And in all of these cases, people were wrongfully convicted of murdering children in their care. And I raise the question, is it relevant that these were all Indigenous people who were wrongfully convicted? In the book's introduction, you quote the Truth and Reconciliation Chief Commissioner, Justice Murray Sinclair, when he says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Can you explain how that quote resonates or inspires your work? I don't know if Justice Sinclair was thinking of me, but I do know that during the process when I was working with him uh, for two years years uh, on a draft of the Legacy volume, uh, he once told me, uh, Kent, this is uh, you know an interesting draft, but I want you to rewrite it without every second unsworn swear word uh, taken out of it. And it made me reflect about how as a settler, I was so ashamed of what Canada and what what lawyers had done. But of course, I didn't have to bear the burden the way that Justice Sinclair and uh, 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 Chief Littlechild, who actually was one of the TRC commissioners who attended residential school, um, did. Um, And so one of the reasons for writing the book is the sense that uh, we haven't had a, a, a Sorry. Uh, We haven't had a public inquiry into a wrongful conviction since 2008. The clear-cut DNA exonerations, such as David Milgaard and uh, Guy Paul Moran, uh, are not happening. And, And that's really the way it should, because in the minority of cases where there is DNA, then we should use DNA in the investigative stage to clear people. And I think Canada is probably doing a better job of that than, say, the Americans are. But I think it was very important for people to recognize that although they don't receive the same publicity, many people are being wrongfully convicted. So we launched the uh, registry, which is at wrongfulconvictions with a s.ca. We launched in February uh, with uh, 70, uh, sorry, 80, 83, uh, but very soon we will add four more to go up to 87. And so this this is a non-trivial number, and we would argue that every story matters. And so with the help of Amanda Carling, uh, who was a co-founder, and many students who have given up their time, we have tried as best we could from publicly available documents to tell the story of all 83, now 87, wrongfully convicted people. We've not contacted them, and we've only used publicly available documents because uh, we are based in a university. Um, This would be research with sensitive human subjects, and we thought that it was best just to try to collect and perhaps amplify a bit the public record as opposed to actually uh, calling up these people and reopening wounds that uh, for many of them, will never heal. You worked as the research director for the Gouge Commission. 
which explored the wrongdoing of pathologist Dr. Charles Smith. Why was this inquiry important, and did its recommendations result in any significant change? Well, the inquiry was important because it was a systemic inquiry that was really looking at uh, the state of uh, forensic pathology and, and especially pediatric forensic pathology. And you have to remember that in baby death cases, the pathologist is often going to be the key person in deciding whether a crime was committed or a crime was not, because usually only a very few people have access to the child. And it's up to the pathologist to decide whether the cause of death is deliberate or uh, accidental or non um, or, or, or impossible to determine. Now, this book allowed me to go back, though, and tell, I think, a more human story, because when we worked as part of the Gouge Commission, not all of these cases had been corrected, and we had we were only looking at fixing the system for the future. Um, to some extent, it was a was a successful uh, inquiry. Many of the people have received some compensation, some counseling, and there is a death oversight council and a new regulatory framework. Having said that, problems with forensic pathology, whether it's in Ontario, Alberta, BC, New Brunswick, they continue to this day. And uh, you know this this just underlines that the criminal justice system, is very reliant on forensic experts. And forensic experts uh, sometimes fail, and sometimes lawyers, whether they be prosecutors, defense lawyers, or judges, uh, do are, are not equipped always to correct forensic error, uh, as I, you know, uh, somewhat half 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 joke. Uh, most people go to law school because they, their science is not good enough to get them into med school. In the book, you discuss the large number of false guilty pleas made by Indigenous people. What are some of the relevant historical and sociopolitical factors behind this phenomenon? Yes, um, I think some of it is really just the alienation that many Indigenous people feel from our criminal justice system. So if you don't trust the system to tell the truth the way that you have been brought up to tell the truth, then why not just plead guilty and get out of the system as quickly as, as possible? If you don't see yourself reflected in a criminal justice system, why bother to trust it? And so I tell two historical uh, cases, which have not been recognized as false guilty pleas yet, uh, but I fear may actually be false guilty pleas. The first is of Wilford Brousseau, uh, who was a Cree man from Alberta with a grade two education. We don't know if he went to residential schools, but it's quite possible. And in 1967, he, uh, the Expo uh, uh, Canada Centennial when, uh, you know, I as a young kid was being uh, led by my mom and my aunt through all of the pavilions in Canada and being proud of Canada, um, he pled guilty to non-capital murder, apparently because his lawyers had told him that if he went to trial, he might hang. 
one of the problems is there had been no hangings in Canada since 1962. The Pearson and Trudeau governments had imposed a moratorium on them. So Mr. Brosseau got bad legal advice. He then challenged his guilty plea uh, and uh, stood up uh, for himself. Uh, within a week of pleading guilty, he had second thoughts because he was sentenced to life imprisonment for non-capital murder. And eventually this went all the way to the Supreme Court. But the majority of the Supreme Court upheld his guilty plea, even though his own lawyer described Mr. Brousseau as, and this is a pejorative word, but I'm quoting, quote, an absolute primitive and said that he had no um, idea of what was on his mind, which is, a, you know, something that is relevant to whether you're guilty of murder. So that's one historical case. And the other one, uh, for me, hits closer to home. This is the Jamie Gladue case. And many uh, lawyers will be familiar with the Gladue case, which is the leading precedent established in 1999 about the sentencing of Indigenous over offenders. Uh, and I represented Aboriginal Legal Services, which was one of the interveners in the case. But of course, Jamie Gladue was charged with murder of her husband, uh, Reuben Beaver, and at the very last moment, pled guilty to manslaughter. And uh, this is one um, thing that unfortunately women who may have a battered woman's self-defense, as there's some evidence that Jamie Gladue might have had that defense available to her, many women in these positions uh, choose uh, to uh, plead guilty to manslaughter. And in this case, uh, Jamie Gladue had two young children. I believe they were four and two at the time of the sentencing. She named the youngest uh, after Reuben Beaver, who she killed, perhaps in self-defense. I don't think we will ever know. And so these are two cases that are not in the registry because the registry only measures cases that have been remedied by the Canadian legal system, so the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Uh, but they do raise the fact that no matter how you chop it up, in Canada we penalize people for exercising their fair trial rights. We call this the, 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 the discount that you get for pleading guilty or the discount that occurs when a prosecutor reduces a murder charge to one of manslaughter or, as often happened in the Charles Smith case, to infanticide. And of course, both manslaughter and infanticide don't have the mandatory life imprisonment that comes with every murder conviction in Canada. Canada has a long history of wrongful convictions. Some cases, such as David Milgard, Guy Paul Morin, and Donald Marshall Jr., are fairly well known. However, many other cases have received less national attention, such as the James Turpin case in New Brunswick that you already mentioned. In your opinion, what issues does this case raise and how should they be addressed? Well, James Turpin was convicted of murder uh, in front of an all-white jury in Fredericton. Um, and after the mother of the toddler that died in his care uh, had testified. And um, uh, that um, uh, conviction was overturned by the New Brunswick Court of Appeal, partly on the basis that the Crown had called way too many 
expert witnesses compared to the two expert witnesses that Mr. Turpin called with respect to uh, the um, uh, cause of death. So this reflects that kind of imbalance. Even with legal aid, the Crown, the state has the most resources. Often most of the experts are employed by the state. At the new trial, uh, Mr. Turpin was charged with manslaughter, and it was only after his lawyer, Nate Gorham, um, cross-examined the forensic pathologist uh, uh, in the fifth week of the trial, where the forensic pathologist admitted that um, she could not rule out that the death was caused by a shortfall when the deceased was in the bathtub, that the Crown decided to halt the prosecution. And so this meets our definition of wrongful conviction because it's not about factual innocence because our legal system, rightly or wrongly, doesn't determine that. It's about a case where someone was convicted, there was new evidence, in this case there was new evidence about cause of death, and either the prosecutor decides not to proceed or the person go, uh, it, uh, receives a not guilty plea. And so Mr. Turpin's case received a, a fair amount of publicity, local pu publicity, in New Brunswick, but really hasn't been recognized as a wrongful conviction. And so this also points to the fact that there's a degree of social construction of who is seen as wrongfully convicted. And one of the reasons why I think universities need to work in this space and not just advocacy groups is that you need to put out cases that may not necessarily um, be popular and may not help advocacy groups that are trying to hang on, get charitable donations. But I, I would defend our choice of Mr. Turpin as someone who qualifies as wrongfully convicted the way that we define wrongfully wrongful convictions, which is very similar to how the American Registry of Wrongful Convictions also defines wrongful convictions. Well, that case leads into someone you mentioned in the book, William Blackstone, who, of course, said in the 18th century that it's better than 10 guilty people escape justice than for one innocent person to suffer. Concepts such as the presumption of innocence and beyond a reasonable doubt are cornerstones of our criminal justice system. In your opinion, what are the main reasons for the significant number of wrongful convictions, including those that are false guilty pleas and imagined crimes? You know, I certainly respect the uh, Blackstonian ratio. I respect uh, reasonable doubt. But, you know, I also think it's a bit of a social fiction. And I think that uh, even people who are trained in the law tend to slip into thinking that if someone is charged, chances are they are guilty. And so, you know, one of the findings which is quite striking from the registry, and it's consistent with with other registries in different countries, is a third of the cases involve cases where no crime happened. So these are cases, these are not kind of the um, David Milgard 
whodunit and the system gets the wrong person. These are cases where we allow our suspicions, whether it's the suspicion of someone like Charles Smith or a police officer or uh, whoever, to blossom into a full-blown conviction. And so one of the reasons why I've looked at imagined crimes and guilty pleas first in this book is I think that they are more difficult wrongful convictions to correct. Because in the case of imagined crimes, these are wrongful convictions that are, in a sense, built into our human psychology, the fact that we are suspicious. Um, And sometimes these suspicions are because of race. Sometimes there's because of education uh, levels. Sometimes they're because of gender. I look at sexual assault, wrongful convictions. In some ways, it, it, it makes sense, given what we know and know about sexual violence, to suspect and strongly suspect men of sexual violence. But there are wrongful convictions in sexual assault cases, and they don't receive the same publicity in Canada as many of the others do for a variety of of reasons, partly because uh, we often have pseudonyms in order to protect the complainant's privacy. So I would say imagined crimes are built into our psychology. Guilty plea wrongful convictions are built into our criminal justice system, which would collapse if people didn't plead guilty, which accepts a guilty plea as a significant mitigating factor at sentencing, and which have all these overlapping crimes like murder and manslaughter and uh, robbery and assault uh, that allow uh, the sort of deals that can make it almost impossible for someone rationally to say, no, uh, I'm not going to take the deal. I'm innocent. I'm going to roll the dice and go to trial. Earlier, you mentioned the new Canadian Registry of Wrongful Convictions. Do other countries have similar registries? What's the purpose of the registry and what kind of impact do you think it will have in Canada? Well, uh, the American registry, I think, has has really done no less than change our debates about wrongful convictions. So the American registry was first created at the University of Michigan, uh, Sam Gross, Barbara O'Brien. And when Amanda Carling and I uh, started work on the Canadian wrongful conviction way back in 2018, uh, we went to Memphis to the Innocence Project Conference and Sam and Barbara and uh, Maurice Posley, who's a journalist who's been working with the American con- uh, Registry, uh, generously uh, helped us. How has it changed? Well, before the registry, we really only focused on DNA cases, and that's because the Innocence Project took DNA cases. That's a perfectly rational decision, but it's a triage decision that is being made by a charitable organization. And so much of the research was based on what is now uh, 375 DNA exonerations in the United States. Well, the American Registry 
country has almost 3,300 exonerations. So you look at the vast majority of cases where DNA is not present, and you see a lot of factors that are, are different than in the DNA cases. And you can then look at all of the cases and look at gender, race, uh, cognitive challenges, provinces, and so on. And again, I just want to stress to listeners that what we're doing is measuring the remedied ones. So it's a tip of the iceberg. So the fact that most remedied wrongful convictions, I think it's about 35 out of the 83, come from Ontario. Does that mean that Ontario is more likely to have wrongful convictions? I would say no. Uh, we know that most innocence projects, including Innocence Canada, people like James Lockyer, are based in Ontario. They were lucky that they do travel and do cases throughout Canada, but Ontario is their home. So it's a research tool that hopefully will allow researchers to uh, re research cases. The first report that we did was on guilty plea wrongful convictions. I hope that we will have other reports and I hope that other researchers can use our data, which is there. We have nothing to hide. It's all all, all there for people to see. So um, um, that's, 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 the, that's the idea. And we now have a registry in Canada. We have one in the United States. We have one in the UK. I hope one is created in Australia and New Zealand very, very soon. And I think this, this is a great boon for not only researching wrongful convictions, but keeping the memory of each wrongful conviction alive so that they're not lost, especially as DNA exonerations decline, but also, frankly, the investigative media declines. That there's a lot of interest in wrongful convictions, a lot of podcasts, and so on. But the fact is, is that we relied upon newspapers for much of our research here. And there is a definite decline in press coverage of wrongful convictions. So the Thomas Yebby's case should have been front page news in every uh, newspaper, as indeed Donald Marshall, Guy Paul Moran, David Milgard was. But the Thomas Yebby's case was quietly resolved in December of 2020. And I think there was one good story in the Globe and Mail, but, but really nothing else. And so this is also measuring a point in time as uh, let us say the media is transitioning and how we will have an archive for the past is not at all clear how future people uh, who are trying to do a registry or really do any historical research, um, where are they going to get their, their raw data? I think that's an important question. In the final chapter of the book, you examine the steps that have been taken to address wrongful convictions in Canada. What has been accomplished to date and what more needs to be done? Well, um, what's been accomplished 
to date is the Supreme Court has obviously created the Stinchcomb disclosure regime uh, after Parliament refused to recognize or implement the recommendation of the Donald Marshall Jr. Uh, uh, wrongful conviction in no, uh, commission in Nova Scotia. Uh, and in United States and Burns and Raffae, the Supreme Court changed its mind and said because of wrongful convictions, we are no longer going to extradite people in Canada to face the death penalty. So those are, are, are two significant changes. But other than that, legislative reform has been uneven. And I think some of this is because of federalism. The seven public inquiries we had were all called by the province, which has responsibility for the administration of justice. And the federal governments of, of all stripes have really not seen that they have have to respond to calls to amend the criminal code. Now, uh, we have Bill C-40 before Parliament, which would create a miscarriage of justice review commission to replace the role of the Minister of Justice in ordering new trials or new appeals if the accused has exhausted his or her uh, appeal rights. It's only been given first reading. I don't know whether it will get through Parliament before an election. And so one of the reasons why I wrote this book now was I thought that it was very important to uh, provide this uh, repository of hopefully accessible stories. And that was one of the reasons why I published it with Simon and Schuster as opposed to an academic press. So because I think it's easy for Canadians to say, oh, wrongful convictions. Yeah, that used to be a problem, but didn't, you know, I feel bad for David Milgard and, and all that, but they don't happen anymore. Why do we need a commission? Why do we need to spend $19 million a year to fund this commission? Well, if you read the book, I think hopefully I will persuade you that we need that and more because I think the bill that's before Parliament is better than nothing. But I also think it can be improved significantly. But first, it has to get through second reading, has to get through committee so it can be, be approved, and it has to be enacted. And even when it's enacted, one of the things that we've seen in, in, in England is they've had a commission since 1997, but uh, recent governments uh, from David Cameron on have starved it of funds, so it's not the remedy that uh, many people uh, hoped that it would be for the wrongfully convicted. Kent, thank you so much for talking to us today. I encourage our listeners to check out the Canadian Registry of Wrongful Convictions at www.wrongfulconvictions.ca. guest today has been Kent Roach. He's the author of Wrongfully Convicted, Guilty Pleas, Imagined Crimes, and What Canada Must Do to Safeguard Justice, published by Simon & Schuster in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We always appreciate likes and shares on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. 
We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on May 9th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.